This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Christchurch Bible Study. Nothing from Jerusalem here on Zoom. It's a delight to have everybody here. And for those who are listening in the podcast, we trust uh, that uh, yeah, you'll consider yourselves part of our spiritual family as we wrestle with the last words of Moses. But before we begin, we will honor the Lord by acknowledging his presence and praying. Sharon, if you would lead us in prayer. Sure. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe. Thank you, great mystery, that you are awesome and wonderful. Thank you, creator, that you know the end from the beginning. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and you want even more for us than we want for ourselves. Thank you, creator, that you've given us all gifts and talents and abilities Help us to honor you and to advance your kingdom with these gifts. We invite now your spirit of inspiration and revelation to overwhelm us and open the eyes of our understanding, Lord, to deepen our understanding of your word and to further our healing journey and our relationship with you. And we push back the spirit of darkness now in Jesus' name. And we thank you, creator, that you have blessed us and will continue to bless us. And we pray for the peace of Jerusalem in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So just by way of uh, announcement, um, as we're heading into uh, the Advent season, the new uh, start of the liturgical new year and the Christmas season, the season for shopping, but should be for the celebration of, uh, of what God has done through the Messiah. Um, Christchurch and CMJ is putting out a, uh, a fundraising appeal where you can purchase T-shirt designs and things like that uh, that say pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122 um, coffee cups and things. And, um, and they all ship internationally, shipping out from December the 8th. Uh, for those who are a part of, of my uh, newsletter group and stuff, you'll get this email out um, shortly. Um, but this is a, a very tangible way to partner with the um, with CMJ and its ministry, particularly Christchurch and Beit Emmanuel, as our buildings are in serious need of repair. We have very old buildings; they are not uh, young, and they need maintenance, which of course costs. Schools. And so, this is a very tangible way to support the work that we do at uh, in. At CMJ. All right. So we are wrestling with uh, the last words of Moses. He is giving his last, well, yeah, his last speech, preparing the children of Israel to enter the land of Canaan, which of course is going to involve war. So part of his teaching is this is how you behave when you're actually engaged in war. And, uh, it's, it, it is an interesting concept because we particularly, you know, 2,000 years later after Jesus, we kind of think of only the peaceful side of the Messiah and the peaceful side of God. Um, but we also have to understand there's another side of God, the all-consuming fire, and this also includes um, battle. So here's a, uh, uh, the summary of our study from last week. So Deuteronomy 20, we got through verses 1 
to 18. Warrior gods were certainly not uncommon in the ancient world. Battle between nations held both theological and political implications for the peoples that adhered to those gods. Success or failure in a battle could induce a religious crisis and faithlessness in a particular deity. God had already fought for Israel during and after the Exodus. Israel was no stranger to the rigors of battle, having defeated the giant kings of Og and Sichon and capturing the territory east of the Jordan. Moses now sets out the rules of engagement during warfare for the people of Israel. He begins by reminding the people that God himself goes to war with them. The priests will also accompany the army into battle, thus once again demonstrating the lack of separation in politics and religion that is in the Bible. The Ark of the Covenant is often carried into battle, signifying the presence of God accompanying his people. However, this would not always ensure victory. And the example there is 1 Samuel 4 details a battle with the Philistines that results in the tragic loss and capture of the ark. Because of its size, Israel was rarely going to be in a strategically superior military position. They were, and still are, the little guy in the Middle East. Thus, Moses instructs that prior to battle against a greater foe, the priests are to encourage the warriors not to have fear. The Lord is with them and to remind them of their own sacred history. God brought them out of Egypt, so this is not blind faith. They have seen God fight for them before. Moses now then limits the conduct of warfare. First, by shrinking the army. The goal here is to preserve life and not to destroy it, even though we are talking about open warfare. Newly married, those in the initial stages of an economic undertaking, be that business or construction, and the fearful are requested to return home and not to partake in the conflict. God only wants willing fighters that he will fight alongside. Obvious example of this is the story of Gideon, who shrinks his army from 33,000 soldiers to 300. Moses then describes the rules for attacking a city that lies beyond the borders of the land of Israel. The implication here is one of expansion, the possibility that Israel will grow and move beyond the land that God had initially promised Israel. Perhaps this explains the various discrepancies of the territorial land that is apportioned to Israel in the Hebrew Bible. Just remember, out of the various uh, maps that you have of the land of Israel, as you described in the Bible, they're different. They keep getting bigger. First, the city in question must be offered terms of peace. Peace here means becoming subjects of Israel. Hence, it was possible for Israel to become an occupier. Ooh, now that's a dirty word. Though the text does not describe the actual peace treaty in any detail. So we discussed some possibilities, including 
changing the laws of the city to align with the ethical instructions of the Torah, banning idol worship, and perhaps the introduction of monotheism. Should peace not be possible, then all males are slain and the females and children are taken into captivity. There are no prisoners of war. There is war booty and slaves. The treatment of slaves has already been discussed and will be discussed again in the next chapter. No one should ever attempt to tame the Almighty God. Some forms of evil can be overcome with good, and some forms of evil can only be defeated by violence. For further information, see the book of Revelation on how God deals with various forms of evil. What spiritual instruction can we find in this passage for the people of God today? Now, there is an obvious tension between declaring Messiah to be the Prince of Peace with the same Bible declaring that there is both a time for peace and a time for war. God wants his heroes to have courage and not fear. Fear is the enemy of the gospel. We should be careful that the faint-hearted do not partake in spiritual warfare, as this will be dangerous for them and for the body of the Messiah. God indeed is with us, but that does not mean that casualties are unexpected. Despite being full of the Spirit, we can expect suffering and persecution, and we should not fall into despair, and we should not lose faith when fellow believers fall. The battle belongs to the Lord, yet we must still face the enemy, who is a roaring lion and not a pussycat. So that's a, a rough idea of our of last uh, last week's discussion. So we didn't quite finish the chapter, so we'll just. Um, oh yeah, I should probably move everybody. Okay, so. All right, I just muted everybody, and now um, you can unmute yourselves when you want to participate, and please participate. Okay, so we're going to finish off just the last paragraph of Deuteronomy 20 and then go straight into um, 21. So I'll read uh, from Deuteronomy 20, 19 and chapter 21 and then see how, how we go. All right. So remember, these are the rules for when we go out outside the land of Israel and besiege cities that were not on the initial territorial allocation. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the, human, in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed them, and then your elders and your judges shall come out and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city, that is, nearest to the slain man, shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke, 
And the elders of that city shall bring their heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither ploughed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck has been broken in the valley, and they shall testify. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt will be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife uh, and you bring her home into your house, she shall, you, she shall shave her head and cut her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and she shall remain in your house and lament for her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be your husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this is our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so that you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, there's a lot there in that uh, chapter, and it might not all seem to make a lot of sense together, but fair enough. Um, so on an initial reading on, on any of the things that is there, so anything that stands out or jumps out? Um, yeah, and one practical thing is how on earth do you break the neck of a heifer? But the other part, you know, when it, it says in them, in, in verse 20 and 21 about when a son, when you've got a rebellious son, you take him out and then it's the elders of the city that stone him. Yeah. Because normally when there's a sin committed in Israel, it's been the person that's brought the, the witness against them. 
Yeah, there is normally things are done in-house, like the Avenger of Blood and this kind of stuff. But it is interesting here that the elders take responsibility, which is, uh, or the men of the city take responsibility. Raised by a village. Anything there that seems um, positive? A lot of it seemed a little negative, didn't it? <laughs> Yay, Shimshon! Yeah, shalom. Yeah, I, I, I missed you guys last week. Um, uh, one thing that jumps out for me is the beautiful captive. Um, she's given so much rights, which is not very common in um, other kind of civilization. Um, because um, when uh, a captive in the war is usually treated like a property. But in this case, if, if, if somebody desires her, then she assumed the position of a citizen immediately and she's treated like any other person. And even to the point uh, if she's, um, when the man doesn't want her anymore, then you cannot treat her bad. You cannot treat her really bad. She's really protected. I, it's, it sounds very impressive for me. Actually, yes. I, I the, um, the, normally in the ancient world, once, once uh, you had success in destroying your enemies, immediately pe people set about looting and raping. And the Torah comes along and acknowledges that you will most likely have conflicts with your neighbours. And so we will do our best that we know you're going to go to war, but we will do our best to actually preserve life and the dignity of humans. And so we will shrink the army that we're sending. Only those who are willing to fight will fight. And, and uh, Shimshon, you, you pointed out something really quite amazing. When you capture a woman, uh, and she and you and you like her, and you've obviously got all the passion of battle and all that kind of stuff. We will protect her by you having to marry her, and she will get instant citizenship into the people of Israel, which is faster than the way anybody else is going to be able to do it. Um, and so, yeah, there is there's some in some small way there is a little sense of uh, human rights in here. I know it sounds strange. Um, but there is. Uh, today, uh, Roddy, you might be able to tell us this because you're the, the lawyer type. The Geneva Convention, that's a set of rules set up for how you deal with war. Is that correct, Roddy? That and lots of things, such as uh, when you are trying to become a citizen of another nation, what can be required of you from your country, how you would acknowledge the documents, such as I practiced law for a very long time, and I'd never heard of an apple still before. Okay. And so when I made Aliyah, they were like, you have to have something apple stilled. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is uh, it's pursuant to the Geneva Convention, and it's so that relations between the countries in administrative matters, that they will be uniform throughout all of the countries who participated in the convention itself. And with, so it's not just rules of war. There's lots of, lots of other things that are involved. But then the question comes down to, I mean, we look around the world today, how many violations of the Geneva Convention concerning war and peacetime um, actions by a country, how many violations do we see on a daily basis? 
basis and who were the most of them filed against and not filed against. Hmm. Well, of course, Israel has hundreds and uh, the other nations that we clearly see are violating them on a, um, an hourly basis. Nothing is ever said or done. Right. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that way before Israel begins to take possession of the land, God sets out his Torah of uh, the Geneva Convention. This is how you will behave. This is how the light to the nations is going to behave, even in times of war. We've got it in times of peace. But once we know from Ecclesiastes, the wisest man said there is a time for peace and there is a time for war. And many of the prophets have said, listen, you want peace, peace, but it doesn't come. So get, get ready for war. But if you are going to go to war, then there are the right ways to do it. There are ways that, uh, that in some small way honor the Lord. For me, when I was reading these passages, so I'll just, just I'll finish my thought, then, then up to you. There's a lot to do with the land. There was a lot to do about people as well, about you know, people and humans and females and captives and sons. And, but there's also um, things about the land. And God has an affinity for the world. Why? Because he made it. God so loved the world. Of course he did. He made it. And at the end of every day, he looked at it and he said it was good. And that's even before there were humans on top of it. Okay, so the world is, is good. He delights in his creation. Um, and it's, it's, it's very, very amazingly made. So when we go through the text, we're going to see lots of things that relate to, to the land, the physical earth. All right, Roddy, what were you going to finish? Well, to, uh, to tack on to what you were saying, you were, you, you've taught me about uh, we can look at Syria as an example of that. Yep. And we go all the way back to Cain and Abel, and uh, his blood was crying out. And the ground was crying out because of the blood. Yep. And if we spill so much blood, the, not only will the ground cry out, but it will die. It will kill the land. To yep. the point that if we look at Syria today, you're telling me that probably nothing would even grow in Syria. We've actually killed the physical land because of all the bloodshed. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll get to that when we uh, actually we'll get to it right now. <laughs> well, wait a minute, but there's something up the first impression thing. Yep. Verse 15. Yep. That's, if a man has two wives and then they had the firstborn son. Yep. I, I don't think I've ever noticed it before, but immediately Abraham, Jacob, they come to my mind. What happens uh, with those? I'm assuming you're going to get there, but I was like, wow, I couldn't get it out of my head. Yeah, most of our heroes have uh, multiple wives and uh, multiple paths for children. And often the one that we think is the most famous, you know, like Jacob and Isaac, they're not actually the firstborn. Exactly. So, yeah, I can't wait to learn about this. Yeah, they're actually, uh, and, and God says, I know you're not the firstborn. I love you very much. You've got a great plan for your lives, but... You, you're not allowed to ignore the other one, uh, which is an interesting, interesting concept. And, uh, and, and we have to talk about that because, you know, God's going to say, Abraham, take your son, your only son. Like, uh, 
Well, who's the other guy then? <laughs> and we're we're gonna talk into that deep, right? Because the blessings okay. are there. Did he get a double blessing? Do we yeah. see that today? Yeah, okay. let's see what happens. Okay. All right. So going back into chapter twenty, where we are besieging uh, cities that are not in the land of Israel. So we have allowed for the possibility of expansion that there and that Israel might even become an occupier. That is, cities will surrender and make peace and come to terms with Israel. And of course, we're not just going to let them remain in their pagan ways. You know, most likely we will destroy their altars and we will send in a few Cohens and Levites to start to teach about the monotheistic tradition and we'll change some of their laws that will be a bit more in line with the ethical teachings of the Torah. We won't force them to become Jews, but uh, we will certainly not allow them to remain in their pagan ways. Then you have this very interesting little discussion at the end about how you should treat the earth while you're making a war. So when you besiege a city, this is verse, uh, verse 19 of 20, for a long time, so even though the Lord is with us, we're not marching around the city seven days blowing shofars and, you know, it's all over in a week. Sometimes we will actually have to engage in a long protracted battle. And spiritually in today's world, that might happen for us too. A lot, not, when we pray, sometimes the Lord does not immediately um, answer our prayers and we have had victory and we get on with our lives. Back to our cups of coffee and our magazines. Sometimes we actually have to engage in spiritual warfare for quite some time. Sometimes uh, it takes us a while to share the gospel with somebody. It's not an, an immediate thing. So when we besiege a city for a long time, making war in order to, to capture it, there's something we're not allowed to do. We are not allowed to destroy the trees that are around. We have to be very careful with the earth that is is around we're not going to war against nature we're going to war against other humans which is a horrible thought okay uh, are the trees in the field human it asks a rhetorical question that you sh they should be besieged by you the answer is of course no verse 20 only the trees that you know are not trees for food you can destroy and cut down you may not build siege works against the city uh, so that you can build siege works against the city that makes war until it falls. Okay, so what are some of the implications there that uh, jump out at, at us? I think I'll, there I'll... are one of the implications is that there are rules against some of the practices of war that we've seen too often, like the scorched earth policy like you know um, destroying everything in sight yep and this you is expect that there's going to be you know life there you know hu human life will carry on and you can't do with poisoning the the ground or, or destroying all the trees yeah there's um there is a we've seen it in in so many wars particularly in the wars of the last century 
um, where we destroy, just absolutely rip up the earth with our carpet bombing and, uh, and, and our destruction. And then, of course, the scorched earth policy of destroying everything in the, in the, in the face of the advancing enemy, um, uh, as though it was the earth's fault that, you know, we were being attacked. And, um, and, and somehow it, that's not what God expects from the people whom he put on the planet. So um, what are some of the implications that this is, is, is bringing up? So humans can have war with humans. We're not meant to go to war against nature. What actually are we supposed to do with nature? What's the rule we have with nature? Take dominion and control. That is correct. That is the rule that God gives humans when he first puts them on the planet, is you will have dominion. And, and obviously, one aspect of dominion is not to destroy it. So what would have been Adam's function in the garden? What was he meant to do with the garden? Cultivate it. Cultivate it, right. And so as it's being cultivated, is it meant to remain static? No. no. It's going to grow, which means there was an anticipation that the garden itself would actually also expand. Okay? You would grow the garden. The, the, the thing would expand you were not meant to just sit and it just stays that way but it uh it doesn't unfortunately and um and the this ever since the the garden of eden um which uh uh, uh by the way in jewish tradition the garden of eden is still in existence okay they theologically okay um they will say one one tradition. I actually learnt it uh, this week, actually, when I was studying the Torah portion for this week, which is um, Toldot. It's the um, generations of Isaac, and so the the the, the parashat starts off in Genesis by saying, you know, Isaac. Uh, so Abraham begat Isaac. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and it says that twice. And that's a, whenever you get these doubles that seem very superfluous, that allows um, rabbis to leap in there and go, "What does that actually mean?" And, uh, and and they and of course they look at the Hebrew and it says, "You know, Abraham, you know, Hiva led Yitzhak." And it's like, how can a man beget another man? That's not biologically possible, right? Women beget other people, um, but the Bible actually puts that physical action onto a man which is impossible. And so they come up with that um, when someone is born, they're actually born in two ways. So Isaac, you are born of a woman. That is 100% true. But spiritually, you are born of your father. And so um, the father's role in a household and as children is, is the spiritual father. And so they take on the spiritual characteristics of their of their of their dad, um, which is a very interesting thought when it comes to Jesus, isn't it? Okay. Um, Aaron, yes, sir. Do you also see the uh, foreshadowing of the uh, New Testament literature, the New Testament book, in these three verses? What trees are we not to cut down? Uh, food trees. Well, the terminology that I have. If it produces fruit, you don't cut it down. 
there if you it's go. not producing fruit, then you shall cut it down and use it for for siege work, which is basically burning fire. Yeah. Now, in Matthew 25 today, is, it comes to my mind the teaching from the Anglicans today. Yeah, that's right. Yes, uh, chopping down uh, uh, and throwing, casting into the into the fiery furnace. Yeah, it's separation of the sheep and goats. And, yeah. uh, you know, many people want to make it a, a works versus faith thing, but that's not what it's about. No. Uh, the, the, the literal meaning here is that uh, nature is not meant to become a victim in your warfare. The spiritual nature uh, thing has some other, other aspects, including the one you just mentioned. And the other one is in, the, in, in, in theology. Yeah. Um, the land itself can become defiled and it can get it can get defiled by the next passage which is unsolved murders blood on the ground defiles it but it can also get defiled by the by warfare itself because in jewish tradition as, as we've discussed before roddy but perhaps other people might not have heard um in jewish thinking the the earth is alive it's not a god like animals and like cats and dogs, they're alive, but they're not gods. And anybody who's ever, you know, planted a tree and watched them grow knows that they're also alive. Okay, You feed it, it grows. You don't feed it, it dies. Okay? Um, and, uh, and so the, 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 this, this sort of idea that creation itself is some sort of sentient being, and has the ability to react. And Paul himself, when he writes, creation is groaning for its redemption. You know, he, he's giving this, this thing called creation, and he's giving it the ability to actually engage in an emotional uh, action, the grieving and, and groaning for its redemption. It's longing to be back to something that it wasn't, that it was before, that, it, that it's not. Uh, right now, and so uh, you will see uh, varieties of passages that appear in the in the Bible where um, the earth actually has a reaction and not God. And I think the biggest one uh, is, or the more poignant one, is in in the book of Leviticus. So, in Leviticus, chapter eighteen, which is a very interesting chapter dealing with. Um, predominantly who you can and who you cannot sleep with, okay? The sort of long chapter on unlawful sexual relations and, you know, all these things of, of, of um, the appropriate use of your body. And then all of a sudden it leaps into verse 24. So after 23, 23 verses of um, laws regarding sex, then it turns around and says, do not make yourselves unclean by doing any of these things. So there is this uh, nature uh, idea, obviously. Things that you physically do can make you physically and spiritually un unclean. For by these, okay, these actions, the nations I am driving out before you became unclean. Okay, they're unclean. We get it. And the land became unclean. So there was this symbiotic relationship that the humans have with the land that an unclean person creates an unclean land. And so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So God punished the humans 
because of their uncleanliness. And the land itself got involved in the process. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and you shall do none of these abominations, either okay, the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. And verse 28, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nations before you. And so there was this concept where God was warning the people that if you're not careful, I'm giving you a series of laws, but if you disobey these laws, I'm not the only one you need to be afraid of because the, the very ground itself, which you were supposed to have dominion over, might actually react to you. And so uh, in, in Jewish thought, they began to think, now, how did that happen? Why did that happen? So Adam and Eve, obviously, are the ones that initiate the fall. And when God comes down to punish uh, Adam and Eve, he also punishes the earth, right? He cursed is the ground, but the ground didn't do anything wrong. Right? Adam ate the fruit. The earth didn't eat the fruit. Yet the earth was cursed. And it was cursed because of a human. And so they began this, this relationship where the earth goes, okay, I'm not being able to do the things that I'm supposed to do because of you. Now, if you keep sinning, I happen to don't like that, so I will kick you out. And as, as Roddy mentioned, it's what you see in, uh, in, in these areas where humans get together and they start massacring each other and they start doing all kinds of horrible things. Then... Uh, very quickly, the earth responds. The wildlife dry, go, runs away. The ground starts to dry up. Uh, the fields fail to produce food. And before you know it, the earth is doing everything it can to get rid of humans. It says, uh, get away from me, human. You're not going to have any rainwater. You're not going to have any food. You're, nothing about me is going to want you to be here. And uh, I mean, and oddly enough, the earth can quickly recover. Isn't that an amazing uh, piece of creation? That once the sins have gone, then the earth uh, can get re-cleansed uh, by the Lord. The best and, example of that is Eretz Israel, Israel, the land of Israel itself. Right. This land was so desolate full of swamps and, uh, and all of all the recordings we have of people who sojourned here in the 1800s couldn't believe that this was the promised land. Like they, they couldn't believe, they thought they were, were lost. You know, obviously I'm not in Jerusalem. There must be another place called Jerusalem because this can't possibly be it. Um, they had looked in the Bible and they had seen that it was going to be a glorious land and they looked in the 1800s what, the, what, what Israel was like and it was, it was swamps and, and horrible. But then once the people of Israel began to come back and actually tend the land and uh, care for it, now that not perfect, that's not what we're saying, okay? And then the earth responded. And how did Ezekiel it respond? 36. People, y'all read that one chapter. It will it'll just, it's amazing. Hmm. Ezekiel 36 yeah. is amazing. It will actually, you can see it within the past 150 years, it happened. Yep. There's, a, there's another verse that also talks about um, the defilement of the land, uh, which is Numbers, Numbers 35. 
And uh, again, this is a sort of mimicking the way Moses is thinking, as we've just discussed the cities of refuge. Um, and in Numbers 35, 33, uh, he begins to talk about ways where you can, where the land, that the, the ground can be polluted by blood, which is what he's going to talk about in the, in the unsolved murder. You shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood, for blood pollutes the land, right? And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people. And so it's an interesting symbiotic relationship. Men are supposed to have dominion over the land. God dwells in the land and in amongst the people, and he made the land, and he, he loves the world. Um, and there is another verse in the Bible where it even talks about the earth crying out with blood on it, which is, of course, in relation to who? Abel. Abel. Yep, and so um, they've got they've got this, this this long piece of sacred history which talks about um, the 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 ground, you know, the earth crying out for vengeance and, uh, and for redemption. So there was this idea that uh, that Israel needed to care for the land physically, and of course we got problems. But once we start going to war, we're actually in essence, defiling it. Because what's one of the things we're going to spill on the ground once we start going to war? Innocent blood, probably. Oh, wait, we're going to throw blood everywhere. Okay, this is obviously not the right thing. So obviously the first thing we want to do was make peace. Remember the last week, the, the first encounter we want to do with a, with a country or a city, let's try for peace. The war really is our last resort and it's going to be done by the, the fewest soldiers possible. Right, when um, the Moses, even though we're talking about war, he is actually trying to preserve life, which is a very interesting little piece of tension in the text. All right, so we are to, to guard um, the, the 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 land itself, in particular the trees that um, bear food. Obviously, that's intelligent, but also theologically and spiritually sound where we are meant to uh, guard and keep uh, the garden and allow it to grow. So in 21, the land, we acknowledge that the land itself has some sort of um, uh, I'll use this in inverted commas, sentient feeling. Okay, It does react and has the ability to become uh, 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 cursed or unclean, let's say it that way, because it already is suffering from the curse, uh, and then we'll react. So if the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, if someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed them, now this is a big deal because we've just read that blood on the earth is bad, and the only way to atone for that is more blood, right? Well, now we've got a problem because we've just come across a body, we can't tell whether this is actually an accident or whether this is actually manslaughter, okay? We have to do some in investigation. But either way, we don't know who killed this person. And so I think this, this text is actually implying a death by non-natural causes. We really are talking about murder here or manslaughter. My head's murder. What's the Hebrew word that's used, you know? I don't 
off the top of my head. I will find it in a minute. But I'm pretty sure it's um, uh, uh, the implication is a murder, but I don't know if it's Tirzach. Okay. So while Michelle's finding the Hebrew for me, then verse 2. What does it say? Okay. The actual word is uh, Nofel, which means a oh. fallen person. doesn't have anything to do with murder. Uh, or, or even dead, okay? Um, so it, it, we have no idea how this person has died, okay? But the implication, I think, is still that this is a, 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 a murder. Okay, then your elders and your judges shall come out and you shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities, okay? Um, which is an interesting uh, thing that they do, okay? Um, is Numbers says we need to do blood for blood, but obviously we can't enact a blood vengeance. It's not possible. And we have no, there's no, the man might have run off to a city as a refuge. We, we're not 100% sure, okay? This could have been an accident and we're off, you know, the guy's off to the, the Galilee, um, uh, like we talk, talked before. And so they begin to immediately assign, assign the cure to the nearest city. Okay, and so the nearest nearest bunch of humans needs to fix this. So the land is becoming defiled. Humans are going to fix it. Okay, and the elders and your judges. Now, who are the judges in the Bible? The priests. Correct. The priesthood are our judiciary. So there is no separation of church and state. They are the ones that are uh, going to do all the super sleuthing and the Sherlock Holmesy stuff. Okay, the elders uh, of the city, the Zakainin, the, the older ones, that doesn't actually mean that they're um, priests, but it's a good chance they might be. The elders of the city that is nearest to the slain, they need to take a heifer. So something is going to atone for this. Uh, so, Aaron. Yes, sir. This isn't really about trying to solve the situation. It's about what you were talking, you were teaching earlier. Yeah. This is about trying to atone for the curse that would come back to the man because of bloodshed on the land. It right. goes back to, to Abel's blood, what you were saying earlier. It's not about trying to figure out who did it. It's about trying to fix a problem with the land rebelling against the men that will still be living there. Correct. That's right. The men, I'm men, we, we, I'm asking. Yeah, we are in, we are in a symbiotic relationship with the earth. Uh, it, we are. And uh, that's why God told us. So this is the way to fix it. Okay. All right. Okay. So what we got to do is well, we're going to, we're going to fix this problem. We are going to have a relationship with the earth and the way we're going to do it. Okay. We're going to take another animal from the earth, a heifer. That has never been worked. Now, this is very interesting. It's not just any animal we got to do. We got to take a special one. Okay, it's never done any any work. It hasn't pulled a yoke, so most likely it's young. Um, not quite sure why it, it, it has to be a cow. Why, why it can't be a sheep or a goat or not? Not one hundred percent sure. No, nothing seemed. There didn't seem to be any comments in any of the texts 
that I read that could explain why. If anyone's got an idea, I don't know. It does mean that most cities ended up keeping a, a series of cows or a, a small herd where they didn't let them work. They would just sort of keep them just in case they found this stuff, right? You know, sort of uh, this sort of idea. Uh, the elders shall uh, bring the heifer. Now you've got to take it down to a valley with running water. Okay, you can't just do it anywhere. Now, that's another interesting thought. You've got to have this concept of living water that is going to be part of the atonement. And the priests are involved. Okay, the sons of Levi. I'm not quite sure why they have to throw that uh, emphasis in, but um, it's not the Kohans per se. Okay, um, it can be. Uh, they come forward for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to bless in the name of the Lord. So one of their functions uh, is not just to be as part of the judiciary uh, as judges, but also blessers of the people. And by their word, every dispute and assault is settled. So again, it just reinforces the nature uh, that the priests have within the community. They are not to be... Um, uh, unseen, they're meant to be heavily involved in all aspects of society. That includes when we go to war uh, and also in deciding matters. And uh, the elders of the city nearest to the slain man, they wash their hands, okay, over the heifer whose neck was broken. All right. So what does the washing of hands signify? Innocence. Right, doesn't exactly say in the text, but yes, I think the implication is clear. We are washing our hands in a very public ceremony. Now, we half the city is not going to hear see this. We're okay? only a very small group of people are actually physically going to watch the priests wash their hands uh, in innocence um, over over the, uh, the the victim. Of course, who's the famous hand washer in the Bible that we know? Pontius Pilate. Yeah, 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 here we have the, yeah, the washing of hands thousands of years before Jesus in the sort of idea that uh, we need this living water, this physical thing where we're um, uh, saying, look, we didn't do this. It's not actually, actually our fault. Um, and then they shall testify that we didn't shed this guy's blood and we didn't even see it happening. So not only did we not do it physically, but we didn't see it. So even if we had seen it, hadn't actually done it, but we hadn't told anybody about it, we would still get the blame. Okay? Like, you know, those monkeys hear, uh, see, speak no evil, see no evil? Okay? Um, if you do see evil, you do actually have to do something about it. You can't sit passive anymore, um, which unfortunately many people in our current day and age we're very comfortable with what, just watching evil and doing nothing about it. And uh, that's not good enough. All right. Um, so the priests say we didn't do it. We didn't shed this guy's blood and we didn't actually see it either. So we're actually off scot-free. So now accept the atonement, the covering. Okay. So we don't just have to wait for Yom Kippur to do it. This is another uh, one that happens now. Um, for your people, so accept the atonement, and then we, this is actually a prayer, right? The priests are actually engaged in a prayer of atonement that goes with a sacrifice, okay? And so the uh, very early on, the idea of a sacrifice and a prayer going side by side, 
uh, begins to appear in, in, in scripture. And uh, you can't have one without the other, right? And so it, it, later on, it will, will go on to add that uh, uh, repentance, uh, sacrifice without a repentance isn't even valid. And so, um, you know, you have prayer, prayer, uh, emotion, repentance, and sacrifice all create this thing called atonement. So God uh, is going to listen. Why? Because we tell him his characteristic, you redeemed. You're the redeemer. So don't just cast us out. Don't let the ground have its revenge. Uh, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel so that their blood guilt can be atoned for. And that way you will purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst uh, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So there's this uh, uh, um, feeling that the earth has an, a reaction. There's a, there's, we find some innocent blood that has been shed. We don't know who it is. We actually will atone. Okay. Just mute everybody again. All right. So we have to uh, uh, make an atonement for, uh, for this land, which we are uh, meant to be uh, caring of. So we engage in breaking uh, the heifer's neck, most likely with a rock, okay, um, uh, a stoning. Um, it doesn't say what you do with the heifer, okay. Uh, it doesn't say that you burn it. It doesn't say that you eat it uh, or what you do with it or ration it out. Um, all, all it does is it gets, it gets killed. Uh, and this takes place in, involving um, living water. So there's a lot of concepts that, that show up there that come out with, with, with atonement. Okay? Uh, the washing of hands, um, the, the breaking of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an animal that has never wor worked. Now, that is not an image of Jesus because Jesus worked his little butt off while he was here. Okay, <laughs> um, This is something different. This is in relation to cleansing of the land which you and I have a relationship with. And uh, um, many of us live in cities, so we actually have a very, um, a very remote thought about the land because it seems so far away from us. Milk appears in plastic cartons. Uh, food comes from the, uh, a man in a small shop around the corner. Um, and uh, we seem to forget that the earth is producing all of these things and it's actually alive and uh, full of mountains and streams and living water and rain and animals and plants. And it is reacting to the humans that are, are on it. And uh, I think that one of the things we need to think about um, is our care for the world. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, we should all become greenies and immediately, um, you know, get rid of fossil fuels and, and all build wind towers at the front of our house. Okay, that's not what I mean. I think we can use our intelligence to, um, to make the world a better place. And, uh, and we can. And, not just uh, our intelligence, but God's instructions. Yes, Some correct. What he has said. Some of what he has created, if yep. it produces fruit, then we cultivate it. We help yep. it out. It has yep. a benefit. Then the other stuff has other purposes. Yep. And so that includes, you know, let's, let's 
you know, plant more trees and care for uh, animal populations and do sustainable fishing. But that doesn't mean stop fishing, period. It means let's have, let's have control and work out, you know, where fish are and how many, how many they are. Let's work out how much food is around. Um, the earth is actually incredibly uh, resilient and works in tandem with humans. Um, the earth, even to this day, continues to produce more food than the amount of humans on it. I know, I know we often think that we don't make enough food in the world, but that's actually not true. Yeah. The, the, when, when you have a look at the World Food Program website, they're, they're re, they're, all of their reasons for global hunger, none of them are, we don't grow enough food. We actually do grow enough food. Our problem is we don't share it enough. You know, we have, um, that's it, bad uh, distribution, says Yvonne, and that is true. We have a distribution problem. But uh, the earth itself is made by God, and it knows how to give people food on top of it. And uh, our problem is we don't care for it properly. And yet here in, the, in these texts, uh, Moses is, is trying to tell the people that when you go into the land, you are going to have a special relationship with this land. This land is going to, is going to feel and sense you on it as you walk around the stones and, and harvest the, uh, the vineyards. And so uh, be good because um, there's this symbiotic relationship that we have. Aaron, can I come back to this point about the, um, having a stream with running water? Mm. I mean, unless the land was very different, uh, you know, um, 3,000 years ago, um, it, there are times when it's really hard to find running water in the land. You know, during the summer, the vast majority of streams have disappeared down into the limestone and you can't see it. So I don't know whether it, it's the idea of one that is at some point in the year running water or whether it still has to have running water there. I mean, in, in some places you would have to you know, trek a long way to find running water in a stream. Oh, gosh, place. yes. If this, if this occurred in Beersheba, they're, you know, they're hooped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, somebody died. Okay, that's it. Beersheba's toast. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm curious about that. It's possible that the, the there was more running streams um, in 3,000 years ago, but not a lot more, I wouldn't have thought. Well, yeah. Most of them would be intermittent. Yeah. That's right. I, I think that's a real puzzle. It is. The, I, oh, I know there are springs and springs obviously have a perpetual water supply. Um, but uh, and so I guess I don't know. Maybe there are a few. I guess in the in the ancient world, most people lived by springs. Hence the reason why yep. the biblical greeting when they met each other was they would say Me'ainata. <laughs> okay. Um, like, so, so you even say in modern Hebrew today, but no one would ever translate that literally. Literally in Hebrew, me'ainata literally means uh, from which spring are you? Uh, that's what, literally what it means. Ein is a spring. And um, why would they say from which spring are you? Because obviously the only time a human ever settles anywhere is near water. And so uh, many of the places were called Ein Gedi, Ein Bokek, you know, um, uh, Ein Harad, you know, all these various Eins. And that's because there was a, uh, some sort of water supply that was located quite, 
quite nearby. Um, so that it, it might be possible that a lot of these things relate to areas that um, have, have the eternal spring that's, that's near. It's possible. But there are places in the country yeah, where you cannot uh, find this. So I guess, I guess when they measure the distance from a city, they probably will measure um, the one with the closest actual bit of living water. And, and, a, and, and, and a spring, an iron, is a living water source. Mm-hmm. We're talking about water that's hundreds of years old that has um, bubbled up uh, from hey, the Karen, I have a uh, quick question here. So, um, you know, the, the elders will bring this heifer down to the valley with running water. But then, so, it, you know, it hasn't been yoked, but also the valley, uh, it's neither plow nor sown. So is there any significance to that? The, yeah, I hadn't noticed that before. Um, so the earth itself hasn't had the, the, the taint of a human on it. It also hasn't had the dominion of a human on it, which is an interesting thought, right? There's a bit of both going on there, right? Um, you know, humans aren't all bad. Uh, uh, some humans can make the earth look real good. Has anyone been to um, the Baha'i Gardens at, at uh, Haifa University? Uh, or in Haifa, sorry. It's a northern city uh, where the Baha'i have their temple. It's their headquarters of their religion. Um, they are a sort of offshoot of Islam that sort of kind of now believes in absolutely everything. Everything. Everybody's a god. Um, and their job on the planet is to make it beautiful. And so they have these amazingly beautiful manicured gardens. So it's quite incredible what a human can do to the planet. Um, but, yeah, this valley is not touched by a human. Hmm. Okay. Aaron? Yes, sir. Yeah, when we look at the... The the this text, especially you know, talking about the land, and I think uh, one of the things it's bringing out is that the people will be responsible for the land, because when there is a dead person lying, and um, you nobody you know nobody saw anyone that did it, so everybody you know just kind of becomes um, a field that is not responsible for it, so he doesn't have to take responsibility for it. So this text is giving us that everyone has to be responsible for the land. And in determining it, of course, they do the measurement and the closest city, the elders of that city becomes responsible. They will take it as if they are the one that have, you know, committed that crime and they will now do the ritual just to take the, the judgment or the wrath of the land away from, from them, of course, invoking the mercies of God. Um, the EFA... The ephah is a very mysterious um, um, animal used for sacrifice. Um, it's an ox, but you remember if you talk about the red ephah, it's yeah, um, yeah. a lot of things you know attached to it. And here you see that the animal is not slaughtered like every other animal. I don't even know even if the blood comes out because I'm trying to connect it with where we read in the in numbers that there is no blood atonement for the land. So we see here that the animal is not slaughtered and uh, the neck is just broken. Uh, it doesn't really mean the blood is going to come out if the neck is just broken. And, um, you know, it shows that, you know, no blood is going to come out. And at the end of the day, uh, you have to invoke God for his mercy. You know, you have to pray. That's all that's going to be done at the end of the day. Uh, it's very interesting. And, um, Absolutely. The priests are engaged in prayer in this thing. They beseech the Lord 
I mean, they do the they do the the, the killing of the heifer. They do, and they do do the washing of hands. They do, but yeah. there is a prayer involved where they do beseech the Lord. They remind Him of His mercies. They remind Him that He's a redeemer, and they say, "Can you atone for this?" Um, and it is interesting that God doesn't like indifference. Right, you know, they yeah. say yeah. we don't know who killed him. Well, that's not mm -hmm. the point. The point is somebody did, and somebody needs to pay. So you're actually going to take some responsibility, mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting, isn't it? And it becomes a communal responsibility. Yeah, and yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. The, you know, it's not like some farmer wakes up and goes, "Hang on, why are you killing one of my cows? I didn't know that guy." Okay, <laughs> um, it's it's. And, and you can actually see in, in many other parts of Scripture where God does take an individual sin and he does blame the entire community. Yeah, yeah. And one, yeah. Of, and one of the famous ones is going to be in the next book in Joshua with the, with the sin of Acham. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. One guy, one guy uh, takes some stuff and then, the, and then what happens in the Hebrew is it's all singular but then once you start talking about blame, everything becomes plural. <laughs> and God starts saying, you know, it's your fault, your fault, your fault. And to the people, like it was one guy, but um, uh, uh, sin is communal. And maybe that's also the reason why in the Lord's Prayer, you know, the, the request is forgive who their sins? Us. Forgive right? us. Very, yeah. communal, very communal approach. In fact, um, one of the one of the incidents that come to my mind is in the book of Judges um, about the the priest concubine that was yeah. raped, yeah. and he you know he, he cut her in pieces and it spread the body over the whole country, and that led to uh, almost annihilation of a tribe out of Israel. You know, it's yeah, yeah. That's another. That was a that was a more devastating one than Acham. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, yes. I, God takes this in, in a different level to us. Jennifer, can I make can I make a comment about? Uh, I've been doing a lot of research about wild edibles, and yeah. one of the things that different people saying is that, like, say you have a bunch of dandelions growing in this area, it shows that either a human or the soil has a need for the calcium, and that's why the dandelions are growing there in abundance. So, more important for that living. Okay. Yep. The relationship that we have there through a chemical. Interesting. All right. So, Aaron, I just yep. wanted to uh, make a comment. I was just thinking about what you said, Samson, and um, I, I'm tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I'm thinking maybe God didn't want an animal to be slaughtered because there wasn't supposed to be any sacrifice anywhere except at the temple. And that, I don't know, maybe that, but it's still like a death, atoning for a death. But then you're also not shedding blood again on the earth. So that you're not, I don't know, <laughs> this perpetual cycle of blood being on the earth, except at the temple. And the other aspect of this is that the only other situation in the, in the Torah where it speaks about breaking an animal's neck is of a donkey. If you refuse to redeem the firstborn of a donkey with a lamb, then right. you shall break its neck. Isn't That's the only other context within the Torah that I could find that mentions the breaking of a neck of an animal. And therefore, it's done in the locality, and it's not as an offering to the Lord as, as 
Melody's just said, it's actually something to do with that locality and deliberately there isn't shedding blood. I think that's the implication. Okay, could be, yeah. So Melody and, um, and, uh, and, and, and Shimshon, although I don't know your background all that much, uh, Shimshon. Uh, for those that don't know, Melody's First Nations, okay, of Canada. And many of our First Nations, Indigenous peoples, have a very strong connection to the land in their, in their traditions far more than most of us who live in cities because we tend to kind of kind of lost it. Um, uh, but the Bible does have that deep connection with humans and the land. And, it's, and obviously it's Israel and their land, but the spiritual implication is also for the rest of us and the way we care for the land that is around us. And the world does not like sin on it. It, it, it doesn't. And, uh, and it, as Paul says, it is groaning for its redemption. It, it longs for the Redeemer as much as I hope that we do too. Um, uh, so we should care for uh, the land. So back to war booty. Now in particular, what we can and can't do with females. Okay. So we are going to make war. We are going to win, maybe not everything, but a fair chunk of the time. And this will involve um, war booty. Uh, obviously, handing out gold and silver, well, that's kind of easy. But what do you do with women? And, uh, and here you have the rules, which on one level, people can get very upset about the Bible. And they can say, you know, what kind of God do you believe in? Look what he does. We know when you go out and you can capture slaves and this is terrible, the subjugation of women. All right, well, let's put it into context and look at the spiritual implications and the, and the teaching, that, the ethical teaching that comes with it. So when you yeah. go out... Yeah. yeah, why the shaved hair? Why shave the why? hair? <laughs> why the shaved hair? Because, because I know Moses had a thing for Sinead O'Connor. I, I just know he did. <laughs> because I was talking to my sister and, uh, you know, the ultra, ultra Orthodox, how they shave their hair and then they put the wig on top or yeah. what is Actually, for the shaved they, hair? It, it, gets, it gets very mystical for them. Okay. Um, uh, in, in Jewish, in extreme Jewish tradition, hair, um, as it comes out, the skin has has a special taint of uncleanliness to it. Okay, um, don't tell me, ask me how, because I, I don't really know. Um, and so, when the, when when they get married, they they have a wax party. Okay, uh, no, uh, they they yeah. Okay, they wax everything. All right, and um, and you think, what the heck? Um, and they shave their heads and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, men too, okay? It's not related to women, okay? Um, and i got to tell you, some of these Middle Eastern men around here are really hairy people. So I cannot imagine what this is like, okay? This is unpleasant. But, but, but there, it's already here in the text. Yes, you've got this interesting thing going on. I don't think that has to do with it in, in the way that they discuss it now. Um, but yes, there is a, an emphasis on shaving this woman's hair and trimming her nails. So we can talk about that in a minute. And you can 
tell me some of your ideas of what you think it might be. All right. Um, so we, when the war, when we go to war against enemies, and the Lord our God, okay, gives them into our hands. Now He's coming to fight for us. We actually engage in battle. Some of us might fall. We've discussed about this. Um, we don't always have immediate, instant success, and it doesn't mean that the walls of Jericho will always fall down. But there is a victory. Perseverance, okay, produces character, hope. Okay, this sort of idea that you will actually eventually overcome. He who overcomes to the end, and we take a captive. And, uh, and we see amongst the captives, there is a beautiful woman. Why not a beautiful man? Because we've killed all the men, right? They're all dead. Um, but we, we do see a beautiful woman and we desire that you take her to be your wife. What are we not allowed to do with her? Sell her. Okay, we can't sell her. What else can't we do with her? Don't make her a slave. Can't, can't make her a slave. Can't rape her. Most certainly. Okay. You know, you, you, I mean, uh, even the Talmud, which has, and I can't remember the tractate, I had a read of, it, read of it the other day. They have this discussion where they allow Jews to marry Gentiles after, after battle because they say um, they don't want, they don't want men who are all hyped up with having to kill people they're all full of bloodlust, starting to do other nasty things, including committing adultery and rape. So they say what you will do is you'll let, it's better that they marry Gentiles than commit adultery, right? Why don't they just take a cold shower and that just, you know, gets it all. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll leap into those streams of living water, which we've talked about. <laughs> As we go over the ashes of the red heifer into the water and we're all good. All right. Aaron, it actually it, it actually says here in my Humash, according to Rashi and Ramban, their understanding of the plain sense of this passage, the soldier soldier may not molest the woman then, but he is permitted to put her through the process described below, after which he may marry her, even against her wishes. And since he knows that she will become permitted to him later, he will be willing to wait rather than sin. And then it says, according to most commentators, however, he's permitted to cohabit with her one time, even before she undergoes the process. After that one time, he may not live with her again before she completes the lengthy procedure described, uh, another procedure which is described further on. So what the Chumash is doing is it's recording the sort of knowledge that, okay, we understand there was a battle, they found some pretty girls, their blood was racing, and uh, they woke yes. up in the morning and went, oops. And yeah, uh, the, rabbis, the priest have come along and said, she's your wife now, mate. Okay. And uh, so we'll put her through the process. And uh, she's going to become, and it's a very interesting process that they that they do. But the, the the actual intention of the law, the actual teaching, the ethical instruction is: we actually value women. They are not to be molested and raped like mm. other nations. Um, the, the 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 people of God might have to go fight, but they will do so in actually a just way. They will act honorably towards their enemies, attempting to make peace. They will act honorably towards their captives in by, by not raping them, actually making them uh, legal wives, which means they're going to have to pay for them. They're going to have to give them children. Okay? They're going to have to actually 
produce and, and allow them to, to live out their lives in a flourishing way uh, as opposed to um, molesting her and, and shoving her off to the side and leaving a poor destitute and who knows what's going to happen. Okay, so they, you have to bring her home and then we begin the shaving of the head process and the cutting of the nails. All right, and you got to take off her clothes, okay, that she was captured in. So everything about her has to change. All right, guys. So um, even though we start with a little bit of human decency by not killing her and taking her as a wife, we then do this other stuff. So why do you think, Yvonne, what's, what's your take on it initially? Why do you think we're uh, shaving their heads? Okay. Anybody got a good right. idea? I mean, the, um, could, the, could the idea of, of uh, well, her belonging to someone else prior and just not having any traces of any uncleanliness from another man, uh, who, who knows? Could be. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, st I'm still hung up about, you know, you can, you can, you can uh, like have a one night stand and if you don't like her, you know, just have her go away. That I'm still having a hard time with that one. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. There is, no, seriously. Two thousand years or three thousand years after Moses wrote, four thousand years after Moses wrote this. Okay, it looks not so good from our side of things because it isn't what we do. Um, but we we got to keep it in its context and got to keep and and look at the ethical teaching of what they are trying to teach, and then take that spiritual learning and take it onto ourselves. How are we supposed to relate to women? It's always to, good, I find, to. Take this ethical teaching and compare it with actually how the rest of the world operated, right. and it's almost yeah. always a massive step in the right direction. Yes. Yeah, the, yeah. The Muslims, you know, the, I mean, you know, with with uh, when Muhammad, they just pillage and rape, and and yeah. you know, it, it's a it's a little bit, it's a little better than that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If I if I may come in there. It, yep. We have a lot of culture here in Nigeria and in some other places in Africa that I know that um, once you lose your, um, your, your, your husband, you're expected to shave your hair. Okay. Um, as a woman. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a ritual that once you lose your husband or your father, you, you will shave your hair. And I, I relate to this text because... Now they have just lost their family members or their father or their husband and they've been brought into the house of this man. And if you read the next line, he says that when you bring her in so that she may um, mourn for her, uh, to spend the time lamenting for her father and her mother and, you know, and other people. So the shaving, uh, for me, I kind of related to the mourning that, was going, that they're going to start to do in the house. Um, and um, it will make more sense because if they mourn for their loved ones, then they can easily come out from it and become um, the wife to this man. Because, um, you know, in other culture, you don't even give them room to mourn for their loved ones. You just, you know, grab them and, you know, they, they become your either sex slave or something like that. But yeah, she's been given uh, so much, you know, that's why I kind of respect this text, um, looking at the time, when it happens, I mean, we don't have um, a Geneva court to try anybody for for rape during war. It was almost um, normal in that era for all the nations. But, you know, these are the lights of the world. And for them, it's um, it's a very serious instruction for them to to take. But I love the 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 midrash of Ibn Ezra. He, he said that she, she will remove her hair so that 
when the man sees her, and maybe because he was, you know, falling in love over her because of the hair, because the beauty the hair is so beautiful. Then when she removes her hair, then he sees her for herself, you know, for real. And I say, okay, no, I don't want to tell him you know? <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, but it's, uh, it makes a lot of sense that when, when you allow her to shave and, you know, you can see her for herself, then maybe they're just having their adrenaline running during the war, but now they are facing reality with this woman shaved, and you can really make a proper decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it must have an aspect to do with the, the, the three things, the, the shaving the head and the cutting the nails and the, the removal of the clothes. It must have to do with also making a, a clean break with the standards or the aesthetics of this foreign culture. I mean, there, there may be styles of what they regard as beauty which was a form of worship to their deities or you know you know a personal adornment which was designed to reflect the deity so these in these three ways both cut, uh, cutting shaving the head cutting the nails and removing the clothes and and basically starting with a whole new set of clothes and everything and a, a new head of hair it's a complete clean start and a clean break from anything that associates with the previous culture yeah. Aaron, so yeah. once that had happened to the woman and technically the guy marries her and then decides, oops, I've made a mistake, what happens to the woman then? Because she won't be acceptable to other men, will she? Well, we don't know that. It's, we don't sell her for money and she don't treat her as a slave. She's now actually um, part of the culture. So exactly what happens is not, not 100% sure. Uh it could be assumed that you know, her hair will grow, she will become beautiful, and she may um, find uh, a husband in another, 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 another capacity. Um, but she's not to be treated as a slave, so there's uh, yeah. that. She's not rejected by the community. He's not just, rejected by the community. Yeah, not at all. So the, the, the cutting of the hair and, and that has several different aspects to it. It does have an element of purity to it with the relationship of uh, 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 contact with, you know, you, the, or everything that was previously pagan or idolatrous or, or, or part of the sinful world. Um, there is an element of humility in it, right? I mean, she was part of a society that was pagan. That was idol worship. That wasn't good. So there is, a, is, a, is an element of humility there. You know, you've been subjugated by the living God or the people of the living God. And there's a definite break with the past. You get to mourn for your parents, yes, but you will be given a new identity. You will, be, you will get your, your new uh, head of hair and a new sense of, sense of purity and a new family. Um, and so this is we can assume that this also involves conversion of some description that at least the husband will most likely introduce God to her and the, and the worship of Israel. Um, and she gets to mourn how long? 30 days. 30 days. How, how long does a normal Israelite person uh, mourn for their deceased loved ones? Java, is it seven? Seven. So she actually will mourn longer than, um, than, a, than an Israelite will. So God is being very generous in relation to um, the mourning period for a non-Israelite. Uh, so so that, you wait one year before you get remarried, so. 
<laughs> a month is, yeah. is a pretty short yeah, and I, I don't understand why the this length of time is that way. It's like a calendar month per se, um, and maybe there's something in that. I, I, I don't know. Um, uh, anyway, uh, it, it, in our current climate, obviously we don't do this. Okay? You know, when we go to war, we, we have the Geneva Convention. We have a, a series of rules of what you can and cannot do uh, to prisoners of war, to women. We're not supposed to molest them and all that kind of stuff. Um, obviously, the Geneva Convention doesn't say, and you can marry them after you shave their head and cut their nails. Yeah, that, that doesn't happen either. But the spiritual implication that comes through is that God is creating a, a people that will not behave like anybody else. They will treat their enemies with respect. They will respectfully fight them, okay? I mean, they, they will try and make peace. But if you want to make peace, okay, we, we go to war. By the way, I win and you lose. But we will respect those that have been defeated. Um, so we, will, uh, we have a certain way of treating women and children. We have a certain way of treating the land itself when we go to war. And, uh, and so the, the, as, as Moses has said at the beginning of Deuteronomy, no other nation is like you. Other nations are going to say, look at the rules their God has given them. They, and, and, and so look at the rules that God has given us in the new covenant. You know, it is fast, it's superior to anything else that's out there the way we are to treat and love our neighbours and, uh, and bless our enemies, the way that we are to care for the earth that is God's creation, the way that we are to care for the elderly and the, the widow and the orphan and the stranger uh, and, and all the other bits that, uh, that, that, that come about. The, Moses is setting up and God has set up, just in parallel tandem, uh, the best way, the, or as, as uh, Paul says, a most excellent way um, that is far superior to anything else that uh, that is um, uh, around. She also, as, as Samson said, this is the fastest joining of the, of, the, of the Israelite people you can get type thing, okay? Um, uh, you don't have to do the, the conversion process and, you know, the mikvahs and things, although they probably did. Um, th this is, uh, you know, within a month, she's, she's Am Israel, okay? And that's um, pretty done. Pretty damn good uh, to be on the winning side. And, uh, as much as I know uh, regarding the shaving, it's uh, it's a tradition rather than a lacha or a law, and uh, it's mostly for hair is considered as a beautifying uh, part of the body of the women. So it's for humility, for modesty mainly. Modesty, okay, cool. And it's mainly uh, Hasidish. Yes. Dreams. And then Nama, would they they would put over that a wig or would they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They definitely don't walk bold or. You know, yeah. I mean, they yeah, they wouldn't use the headscarf. They would use and that's and I think that was that's for the wigs, right? Not they would um, yeah put uh, something and a wig on top of it mostly, but it's it's very it's it's for her opinion. She she decides what she wants to go with. Of course, there's kind of a fashion and uh, norms, but it's her decision, yeah. as much yeah. as I know. 
part of the courting process is the, you know, the boy and the girl talk. And one of the things they talk about is what are they going to do with their hair? <laughs> yeah. yeah. As, like, oh, as opposed yeah. to where shall we live, you know, and what shall we do <laughs> during the day? What, what sort of car do you want to buy? Oh, and what are you going to do with your hair? You, you know, Styling. Um, yeah, what's a, it's a thing. All right, guys. Um, okay, we'll, we got up, we'll get it to there. And then so next week we'll pick up uh, with inheritance rights of the firstborn, which is um, a big deal when, when uh, most of our biblical heroes are not the firstborn, okay? which is an interesting concept. Okay? Go through the Bible, pick up your biblical hero, and work out that he's actually not the firstborn. Right, and um, even and it starts you know, all the way with um, with the tribe of Judah. Judah is not the firstborn, and yet he will produce Messiah. Okay, uh, and then we have this interesting discussion on killing your own son. Whoa, that's kind of wild. Uh, wild, and then the um, does God actually curse something that's hanging on a tree? And uh, so those will be the topics. Um, for next week's discussion. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.